Our Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to attempt this evening a rather rapid run through chapters 14 through 16, those uh, three chapters which uh, culminate at what I think is the low point in the life of David. It doesn't get any worse than it does by the end of chapter 16. Uh, Up to this point, his baby son has died, his daughter has been raped, second son murdered, and his brother, yet a third son, has been exiled and is a murderer and a fugitive from the law. His first sin, David's first sin with Bathsheba, uh, then led to the, the killing of Uriah, the rape of Amnon, the failure then to execute justice against Amnon, uh, led to his murder by Absalom, and then his failure to follow through justly in the punishment of Absalom will leave, lead to civil war breaking out in the nation, David being cursed by Shemai and Absalom, on the roof of David's house with David's concubines. And yet there's uh, even more with respect to David's failures that's evident in this passage. If you look at the last few verses of chapter 13, it says, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. Now who is that? Well, that happens to be the father of Absalom's mother, mentioned as such in chapter 3, verse 3 of 2 Samuel. Geshur is a Canaanite nation north of the Dead Sea and across the Jordan. And so Absalom, it turns out, is the son of one of David's foreign wives. And it's interesting that so much of the court intrigue that we find in the books of Samuel and King are directly related to the violation of the command to have one wife. Because of polygamy, because David fathers children through several different wives, the children of each wife tend to clan together and see themselves as distinct over against other brothers and sisters. And there, is, there are warrings, as it were, and factions within the family based upon bloodlines. And so his failure there leads to, at least in some degree, to this, this uh, fratricide between Absalom and his brother. In addition, this foreign wife, this wife is a foreign wife. Uh, she's uh, a Canaanite. And it probably is no accident that, Dave, that rather Absalom so, shows no, no concern for, um, for David's religion, shows no concern for God's appointment of David as king of Israel, and doesn't seem to show much of a moral conscience at all. In verse 25, we have this description of Absalom of chapter 14. Now in all Israel was, now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no defect in him. You know, it's often said of David's family that they were good looking. It's said of David, it's said of Absalom, it's said of Tamar, it's It's said of the second Tamar, Absalom's daughter, all of them. They were beautiful people. They were handsome people. None is praised so highly as Absalom in this regard, but nothing is said about Absalom's character. 
What's highlighted is his looks, his, and his beauty is apparently only skin deep. Because he manifests throughout this no concern for the things of God and no conscience about the things he does, as horrible as they are, again and again, devious and depraved as he is in his conduct, whether with David's concubines or in killing his brother or in, or in lying and deceiving and rebelling against and launching a civil war against his own father. He's handsome, he's clever, he's personable. But David is facing a seemingly completely amoral opponent. And so let's look, beginning at verse 14, at the restoration of Absalom. Having committed this horrible sin and this, this, uh, this grief-stricken scene at the end of chapter 13 when there, the whole family, as it were, who has witnessed the, the killing of Amnon comes back to David weeping and mourning and crying, and yet David does virtually nothing but to see that justice is done. And so time passes. And it says in 14.1, Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. Inclined toward is uh, interpreted in a various ways by the commentators. Some, things, some say it means against. Some say it's for. Uh, some say it just really indicates that his mind was fixed upon. Maybe that's the best alternative. He's fixed upon. He's thinking about Absalom. He's preoccupied with the question of Absalom. And Joab, who is under a curse of David, is probably courting favor with the one who is now the heir to the throne. Now that Amnon, the firstborn, is dead, the next male heir will be Absalom. And Joab wants to get on Absalom's good side. And so Joab goes to work to reconcile Absalom, to re return Absalom to favor in David's court. So in verses 2 and 3, he gets a wise woman from Tekoa. Tekoa is a city about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. He tells her to dress up like a mourner. She does. She goes to David and tells a story in verses 4 through 7 of a widow who had two sons who got in a fight, and one of them was killed, and the family is seeking to avenge the death of the one son, thereby killing her only other son and leaving her without any heirs at all. And so in verse 8, David hears the story, and he, he agrees that he will look into it. What he wants to do, having heard that this is a crime of passion, there is room for leniency in the handling of this. Uh, there isn't a mandate of uh, capital punishment when it's been a crime of passion. The law distinguishes between these things. And so David promises to look into it in verse 8. In verse 9, that's not enough for her. She presses him further. So verse 10, he promises to protect her. That still doesn't satisfy her. And so in verse 11, she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood may not continue to destroy, lest they destroy my son. And finally, David relents, and he says, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Well, then the woman begins to draw the parallel between that situation and David's situation. She says in verses 12 and 13 that this parallels, that is, this, this, uh, this situation of one son killing the other and the sole survivor being hunted and, 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 and in a situation where he ought to be spared parallels the situation of Absalom killing Amnon, and Absalom likewise ought to be spared. 
she draws that, 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 that parallel for him. Saying in verse 14, look, why cry over spilled milk in effect? Water falls on the ground. You can't retrieve it. What's done is done. You, David, should not cut off your heir. And then in verses 15 to 7, she beats a hasty retreat into her own affairs and talks more about that so as not to expose uh, her, her true identity and that she's on a mission for Joab and what exactly she's trying to do. Verses 18 through 20, David, in fact, answers her seeing right through the whole charade and Joab behind it, which she admits to. But incredibly, in verse 21, David says to Joab, Behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. He buys the argument. Verses 22 and 23, Absalom returns. Verse 24, however, the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So David buys the parallel. He's convicted by it, much in the same way he was with the parable that Nathan told He's convicted by the parable that the woman of Tekoa tells at Joab's bidding and agrees to allow the son who killed the other son to come back. Now, what's wrong with this picture? I see two things wrong with this picture. Number one, there's the problem of justice. You know, sometimes it's said, time heals all wounds. Well, two years have passed between the rape and, and the murder. Three more years passed with Absalom in Geshur with his in-laws, or rather with his mother's family. That's five years have gone by. Then he's going to spend two more years in Jerusalem before he sees David. Seven years will pass. What's changed over those seven years? What will have changed? Will anything have changed? Will Amnon come back to life? You know, will the murder be reversed? What's changed? There's still an injustice that's been done. Does time heal wounds? Ask yourself about the Middle East today. Does time heal wounds? They've been fighting over there for how many thousands of years? The same battle over and over and over. What about Northern Ireland? Does time heal wounds? They've been fighting that battle since the 16th century. Since the Ulster Plantation was, was, uh, was founded. And then uh, furthered by Cromwell. Bitterness since those days, hundreds of years have passed. Does time heal those wounds? What about Bosnia? Been fighting that one since what, the ninth century? The same things, the same bitterness. Does time heal those wounds? No, it doesn't heal those wounds. Does time correct wrongs? Does it make them right? No, it doesn't. What's wrong with this picture? What's prob well, the problem is David's not dealing with the problem. He's not, he's not, Facing the question of justice, he is not following through as he is required of ki as king to see that justice is done. Never mind his responsibilities as a father. But he's allowing the whole situation to continue and the bitterness to fester. And he's really turning his son as a consequence into his martyr, into a martyr. We talked about that last week. How over time you begin to see your children who are the ones who are doing the wrong as martyrs and victims who need your sympathy. And so sympathy is beginning to uh, 
gather around Absalom and his cause. This is the point of verse 13 when uh, the, the woman says, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring back his banished one. All the sympathy, you see, is now being directed against, uh, toward Absalom. This poor one who's, who David won't allow, uh, who won't even see, who David kept banished for two years and when he came back wouldn't even allow into his presence. It dims the memory of, of what justice requires. Moreover, the parallel in the parable is, of course, quite imperfect. In the, par in the parable, there was a premeditated crime. Uh, uh, rather, rather with Amnon, it was a premeditated crime. In the, in, in the parable, it's a crime of passion. That's a whole different thing. The laws of Israel recognize a difference. It's one thing to lose your temper and strike out at somebody. That's one kind of crime. It's another kind of crime. We distinguish in American Jewish jurisprudence between first-degree and second-degree murder or third-degree murder. And that's the distinction. Was it premeditated or not? Absalom's crime was premeditated. In the parable, it wasn't premeditated. It was a crime of passion. That's a different crime with different penalties. It's not as heinous an act to in anger explode and, and lash out at someone in a fight and, and a death result as opposed to plotting and planning and premeditating a cold-blooded murder of another person even in front of the whole family. It's a different crime. And the other uh, failure in this parable is that, uh, the, the, in this case, it was the woman's only other son, who was the only remaining heir that, that was going to be killed or avenged uh, by the rest of the family. Now, was it accidental that that little detail was added, or was that added in order to appeal to the sympathy and the emotion of those who were hearing, David and others who might hear of this parable? I think it's obvious what's happening here. It's an attempt at manipulation. It's an attempt to appeal to the emotions. In the parable, it's, it's this accidental thing, a crime of passion, and there's only one son left, and this poor widow woman is going to lose her only heir. Whereas in this, it was cold-blooded murder, and there are other, there are other sons that remain. It's not a case of a poor widow woman. It's the king who has other sons. And so it's an emotional appeal that's being made here that is, that is bypassing David's conscience. Whereas when Nathan told a parable, it was aimed directly at David's conscience and the parallel was exact. The parallel of the parable was exact in the case of Nathan. But here, it's an emotional appeal. It's a sentimental appeal. And the thinking behind it is foggy. It's unclear. It's unfocused. It's untrue. And it, I think it's deliberate in order to evoke the sympathies of David toward, uh, toward his son. And then the second problem here, as I see it, is the problem of, of, uh, of, of, of forgiveness. In other words, this. If Absalom is innocent, he ought to be restored. If Absalom is to be forgiven for some reason, if there's some reason to forgive him and absolve him of his guilt, then he ought to be restored. If he's guilty, then he ought to be punished. But what David is doing is taking half measures. He's not punishing him as he ought to be punished and that there ought to be a civil trial and he ought to be executed for cold-blooded murder. No, he's not going to do that. Instead, he banishes him for two years. 
Well, then he, he's talked out of that, so Absalom comes back into Jerusalem, and then he just won't allow Absalom to see him uh, for uh, another couple of years. He's taking half steps. He's not willing to forgive him because he knows there's something wrong. He's aware of that. He has enough conscience, David does, to realize there's something wrong here. But he neither does he have uh, does he feel that it is that 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 is right to to completely absolve him. So he takes these half measures. He punishes him halfway, not the full way, and forgives him halfway, but not the full way, and leaves Absalom in this kind of midpoint where bitterness, as we've said, is, is going to continue to fester because the, the punishment does not fit the crime. It satisfies nothing. It satisfies no one. It doesn't serve justice. And neither is it gracious. And so in this context, bitterness continues. Alienation is heightened. What is needed is swift and proportionate punishment, as is always the case in the administration of justice. It must be swift and it must be proportionate. The punishment must fit the crime. Banishment does not fit the crime. Um, merely refusing to allow Absalom into his presence does not fit the crime. And so it's both a failure of justice and a failure of forgiveness. Then in verses 28 through 33, we read in 28 through 32 that after two years, Absalom's had enough of this. He is an insolent, rebellious uh, individual. He burns Joab's fields because Joab won't answer his entreaties. And Joab comes to him and says, what are you doing? And Absalom says in verse 32, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would, have, it would be better for me still to be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death, knowing full well that his father will do no such thing. He demands that Joab go, go to the king and say, Either see me or put me to death, but enough of this halfway house. So in verse 33, David acquiesces. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. This is a very formal thing that Absalom is doing. It's a matter of protocol. And the king kissed Absalom likewise, a matter of protocol. But uh, does this reconciliation affect a true reconciliation? No, it's cool. Reconciliation, but not repentance. And I believe that clearly what we have here is David has created a monster now. He has this very bright, very colorful, very attractive, very appealing and personable son, Absalom, who has no defects, it says, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, who is brutal, who is amoral, who has no conscience, and now he sits in David's court where he can build a following and a gathering around himself. And this is what happens when justice is not done. Parents create a monster. They create little brats. When they don't do what's right, when they don't follow through on discipline, when they don't do what's just, when they don't follow through on their words, they create monsters. Churches create messes when they won't exercise discipline, when they don't, won't follow through consistently, 
and maintaining a biblical witness throughout the membership. They create a mess. One mess after another mess uh, with, with members uh, getting further and further from the biblical requirements and the reputation of the church and the witness of the church being muddied further and further by those who will not live according to Christ's commands. The government creates barbarians when it won't do justice. It creates monsters and they're, they're uh, out there in droves. And you know, the, the latest thing coming through the judicial system that's been reported in the papers is that if you think it's bad now, wait till the, the nine and ten year olds and seven and six year olds. There's this huge demographic wave of young, illegitimate children who've had no adult supervision who are coming up and they're talking about an absolute explosion of crime. Violent crime with kids of kids with no conscience. When there's no justice, you create a monster. David has created a monster. Parents create monsters. Churches create <laughs> ugly situations. Monstrous circumstances, as it were. And governments create barbarians. Or if they don't create them, they at least encourage their growth and development. And so in verses 15 and 16, all of this erupts into rebellion and civil war. Beginning at uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, it says that it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And it happened that when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good. Kind of patronizing statements. They're good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. That was just false. We just saw the widow of Tekoa had direct access to the king. It gives you a little insight into the way justice worked in Israel. The king was accessible. She was able to have an audience with him and bring her complaint. This is a lie on Absalom's part. It's not true. But that's what he's saying. That's what he's claiming. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. A completely self-serving statement on his part. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. He's playing the king. And it came that when... Uh, man, when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. He is usurping David's rightful authority and place as the king of Israel. And in this manner, verse 6, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. I don't know, is David aware that this is going on? It's hard to believe he couldn't be aware. He wouldn't be aware. But again, he's not doing anything. He's passive. He's, he's reacting and not reacting. He's not taking the initiative. He's not doing what needs to be done. He is blurry-eyed and foggy-eyed because of his affection for his children. He can't see straight. He won't do what's necessary. He continues to overlook these transgressions. Here's his son usurping his position, but he's doing nothing. And so he's building a following. In verses 
7 through 9, he deceives David into leaving the court and going to Hebron, the location of David's uh, coronation as king. And in verse 10, we read, But Absalom sent spies throughout all of the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And he had 200 men with him, it says in verse 11, who were innocently accompanying him, and they soon find themselves surrounded in verse 12 by more and more who were rallying from throughout the nation, who were gathering. He's building an army at Hebron. And it says at the end of verse 12, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then in verses 13 through 37, we read of David's pitiful flight. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so David flees. In verse 23, it says, While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. They leave the city, and into the wilderness they go. Verses 24 through 29, they abandon the ark of God. They leave it in the temple or in the tabernacle. In verses 30 through 37, we read of David losing his, uh, his, the greatest of his counselors, Ahithophel and Hushai. And so he's now deprived of those who gave him his best counsel. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Ziba informs David that Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Saul, who David had befriended, and cared for, had betrayed him now. Even Mephibosheth, of course it's a lie, but David doesn't know that at this point, just compounding his grief. In verses 5 through 14, he's cursed by Shemai. In verse 5, we read there, David came to Baharim, and behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. And thus Shemai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. And David has come to this. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. The king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you so done? David showing a humility and a submission to the will of God 
even in this, in verses 15, uh, 15 through 19, Absalom enters triumphantly, as it were, into Jerusalem. Verses 20 through 23, he then goes into the concubines of David at the advice of Ahithophel. And the point of doing this was that this marked a new dynasty. It was typical in Eastern civilizations that when one king succeeded another, that the king's concubines became a part of the household of the new king. So it says in verse 22, they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And it recalls chapter 12, verse 12, where God said, Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. David sinned with Bathsheba, and the judgments are still raining down upon his head. David being beaten down further into the ground as God's disciplining hand relentlessly ensures that David will reap what he has sown. Remembering that both are true, that we reap what we sow, but what we sow is also what God, through his judicial action, ensures that we will receive for what we have done contrary to his will. And the contrast throughout here, in spite of David's sin, is amazing. He shows concern for others throughout, for his foreign uh, strong men who served him. In chapters 15, 19 through 23, we see that. He's praying in 15, 30, 30, 31. The submission that we just saw with uh, Shemai and, and in leaving the ark in Jerusalem. And Absalom throughout is this ruthless, despicable character. And why does all this come upon David? Because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And God is vindicating his holy name and demonstrating that God will not be mocked. And as David has sinned, failed to correct. Sinned again, failed to correct. Sinned again, failed to correct. Not following through judicially with Amnon or with Absalom or with Absalom as Absalom begins to gather support. His weakness, his passivity, his, his inability to deal with his own children, his ten, tender-heartedness to a fault, his, his unwillingness to, to deal with him according to justice is compounding his sins and compounding his errors. He would just do what God commands him to do. And yet, to end on a positive note for all this, and I think this is the, the, the bottom. He is at the, the lowest point right now with Absalom on his roof with his wives and concubines. And yet from that depth, God will yet raise him up again. He will not forget his promises to David. 
His grace will prove even in this to be sufficient. And though David must suffer for, and though God must vindicate his name and visit these judgments upon him, yet God also is going to raise him up and restore him once again to his throne and restore his land and heal it. And all of history will remember David as a great king. And when Christ himself comes, he will come as who? The son of David. God's grace is sufficient even for David as we pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that on our Lord Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for our sins. And you're able to restore us even from the pit of our own depravity and heal our broken lives, our broken marriages, our broken families. You're able to heal and restore. But, oh, Lord, we pray for your healing hand to work throughout our whole congregation. Heal the brokenhearted. Repair those struggling and disintegrating marriages. Hold together those families. Bring reconciliation. We pray throughout our church and throughout our nation. Oh, great physician, heal your people, we pray in spite of our foolishness and rebellion against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.